Welcome to the A Sound Effect podcast, the podcast about sound effects. My name is Aspen Andersen, and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. And I'm Christian Halskjær, founder of Hertz & Bits Sound Effects. And as always, we have some exciting people on the show today. Can you tell us about who they are and what they're put up to? Absolutely. Uh, for this episode, Jennifer Walden spoke to BAFTA award-winning composer Jesper Kidd, or Kyd, as we say in Denmark, who uh, scored Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And I believe we also get to hear a couple of snippets of that music too. Very nice. She also spoke to Jason Cushing from uh, Soundmorph, who is a featured sound creator on soundeffect.com right now. They spoke about Soundmorph's work, uh, the stories behind their sound effects libraries, and, uh, and about independent sound effects in general. And we also have something uh, quite exciting to announce. We formed something called the Audio Podcast Alliance, which is sort of a collaboration between some of the what we think are some of the very best podcasts about sound. And uh, yeah, we have quite a few members already. You're very welcome to check them all out at audiopodcast.org. Let's get this one started. And before we do, let's uh, hear some of the interesting new releases from the SoundFX community. Pulse Energy Weapons by Penguin Grenade is a sound design toolkit built for creating sci-fi weaponry. Over 4,000 sounds of 78 pre-designed weapons in five modular categories. The Cave by Sound Tailor Effects Library is a collection of surround sounds recorded in Europe's largest cave. Recordings range from extremely quiet room tones to water-dripping sounds, howling and whistling winds, and much more. Extinct Animals, The Jurassic, by Articulated Sounds, contains more than 400 imagined sounds of dinosaurs as they might have sounded about 100 million years ago. Niger Sahara Desert by Ebenhor Andersen and distributed by Sonic Salute is 117 stereo tracks recorded while traveling with a group of nomads into the Sahara Desert. Everything from sandstorms and desert winds to lively crowds and camel grunts. This is Jennifer Walden for a sound effect, kicking off our new featured sound creator series, where we get to know a bit about the people who are designing some of the amazing libraries on the sound effect. Today, we are talking with Jason Cushing of Soundmorph, creator of popular libraries like Robotic Lifeforms, Future Weapons, Elemental, Users of Tomorrow, Dust, Gore, and so many more. Hello, Jason. Thank you for joining me in this Featured Sound Creator podcast. So first, let's find out a bit about you. How did you get your start in the sound industry, and where did you get your start? Um, I lived in New York for uh, for like five years in, um, the, in the early 2000s. I worked at a cartoon studio called Four Kids, and they did a lot of like redubbing stuff in English from Japanese cartoons. So they did like Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it was not the one from like the 80s and 90s. They had a team of animators there actually, which was kind of cool, like where we recorded the voices. 
I did uh, assistant engineer and then recording engineer for voice actors for cartoons. Is what, what I did for like the first five or six years after I got out of school. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, just working with the voice actors and learning as a young person how to work as a professional, <laughs> not as a kid anymore, you know, things like that. I remember one time when I was like 20 or 21 or something and there was a deadline on this one cartoon and we were working like a lot of overtime and a lot of hours to try to get it done. And the client was there from L.A. or something. And I was just like freaking tired, you know, and it was towards the end of this crunch for a while. And I thought I had like this good rapport with the client. So I was like too loosey goosey. And I, <laughs> I got complained about like, how are we going to have to keep working so many hours? Like I'm freaking tired. And like, oh, no. <laughs> or something like that. And the director of the studio came in and was like, you're lucky that I like you because I'm so close to firing your ass. Like, and it was the first lesson I was like, okay, well, I'm not like, I can't mess around anymore. If I want to keep my job, I got to <laughs> <laughs> Not be a dumb, not be a dumb kid anymore, you know? Yeah. And then it's weird, like, when I got further on into my career, before I quit, um, when I started getting treated like the client, I was like, this is so weird. Like, I'm, and they're like, would you like some sushi, sashimi rolls or whatever? I'm like, whatever. I don't care. Give me a burger. Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's weird. I don't know, just the progression through life and your career and how people feel you. It's, it's funny. So you quit the studio and what made you start Sound Morph? I, I just do it because I like sound and that's the most important part, you know. And it's a business too. I didn't have a business before this. So there's a lot of learning along the way. I mean, kind of just started Sound Morph thinking it'll be cool to do something that we kind of felt, you know, that we could represent something that maybe wasn't out there and have a little extra money to like buy a nice meal at a restaurant maybe once a month. That'd be cool. And then it just went from there, so which was all a great surprise and, and a great journey, you know? It's funny how things go sometimes. So who is Sound Morph? How did you guys get together and get started? Um, there's my me and my partner, Jan David, uh, is um, a guy that I met in, in Montreal. So I lived in Montreal from 2010 to 2017, basically. And uh, I was working at, at Electronic Arts before that and got offered the, a senior position at a mobile game company called Gameloft, which like just churns out mobile games like a factory. But the team that I worked with there were just so friendly and great. And like one of the cool things about it was that was the headquarters for the world for the audio team. And they had so many mobile games that they were making every year and they didn't want to pay licensing. So they had a team of composers and then a team of sound designers. And it's probably one of the bigger game audio teams. And there was like 25 or 30 of us. I mean, a lot, a lot of audio people in one building, you know, that many studio rooms in one building. For a game studio, it's a pretty decent amount of people. That place was like, it was great learning and, and learning off of each other because there were so many of us that um, a lot of people shared between each other. And I think at Electronic Arts a little bit, there was um, some great people there too. But it's competitive. And some people, I think, like to keep their, their secrets to themselves. They've got sound design tricks and they don't want to share it. And it's like, this is what makes me valuable is no one knows how to do what I know how to do. And I guess I never really looked at things that way. I think that you learn off of each other by sharing the things you know and sharing something cool with somebody and then they take that and do something cool that you didn't expect. 
Uh, that's always been my philosophy behind it. And I think that that was one of the great things about the team in Montreal. And anyway, I met Jan there and he's French Canadian, uh, actually Acadian. I should be totally clear. Acadians are the East Coast old school French people. Um, Jan and I met there. We really got along. We did a lot of field recording together before we started Sound Morphin. We just kind of got along and he had a good sense of humor. We liked like stuff like South Park and just stupid things that like we could tell that we had the same taste, I guess, but also totally different people. Like he's much more of a programmer type and, and creative too. Oh, I, th I think I was more into the recording of the sounds as time went on. So I do more of the recording and and working with the other sound designers as contractors to help us make some of the stuff. I think one of the things I struggled with a lot when I was first starting off in sound design, um, I worked at a film studio where we really only had like sound effects libraries. Like I didn't have a mentor that was teaching me how to sound design and all that stuff. I was like, here's the sound effect library. And I was really more of an editor. Like I was learning sound design, but I was, you know, decent at it, but I really didn't know a lot, like really didn't know a lot. And then I got hired at, at Electronic Arts to work on Mass Effect 2, which was like a huge big deal to me. I was kind of just like shitting my pants because I was like, I don't like they don't know that I don't know very much or like they I mean, I whatever I worked my way there. So they, they, they believed in me. But I remember a lot of the time, like just constantly asking some of the guys like, how do you do that? How did like, you know? But one of the things I really struggled with was like making UI user interface sounds. I was like, I don't have no, I have no clue how to make those, especially like futuristic ones. I was like, I don't know how to make these. And um, looking back at it now, I'm like, it's so easy to make interface sounds. Like you just take some metal and repeat it and then take another scrap and just throw whatever you want in there and chop it up and put a little synth in. And you've got, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, but we have a lot more tools now too and a lot more resources for education. One of the things that I think Asbjorn really did what right with a sound effect, and clearly he's still doing it, is having uh, interviews with the pros, doing blog stuff, and now the, you know, you know the uh, interview uh, with me, and I'm sure it's going to be lots of other ones too. Younger people and schools, and, uh, and and even pros, like you know, they love to learn more and hear from their colleagues and. You know, it's like different approaches to uh, how to run companies too. And I think that, that having this kind of stuff really helps engage your audience and um, gives them something to listen to and learn from, hopefully. <laughs> so speaking of different approaches to running a sound effects company, over the past several years, Sound Morph has become well-known in the sound industry. So what are some things that you're doing to be successful as a company? Um, I'm really grateful for people that believe in the stuff that we put out. Um, I, I have a lot to do with, with a lot of the stuff Soundmorph puts out, but there's also a lot of help from other people and artists and my partner, Jan. And I think there's a combination of things that make something successful. And one of the, the, one of the things is obviously like our thought behind it, but also the timing. You know, Boom Library came out and I was like, wow, these guys are great. They're making really fantastic stuff. Boom kind of set the tone, I think, for, for a lot of these companies growing, including Soundmorph. And I'm sure that they might not love hearing that, but, but you know, uh, that's just how it goes. That's evolution. Yeah, you know? well, Boom does Boom really well, and Soundmorph does Soundmorph really well. You have something unique to offer. Definitely, for sure. Um, I mean, I think that's why Soundmorph has been successful, is that we have our own take on how we like to do things and uh, what we want to put out. 
that's why people like us. And I think that we put out, uh, you know, we really do try to put out high quality products that we would want to buy. You know, sometimes you hit a home run and sometimes you hit like a single. Uh, <laughs> but we always do the Babe Ruth point. I mean, I think we try to. But uh, yeah, some, some of them you just feel it. Like I knew Dust was going to be a hit and it has been. And then, you know, other sound libraries, uh, Cinematic was, was a hit right when it came out. And, you know, certain ones you just kind of feel, oh, this one feels special or feels different than the other ones. But I mean, we're always trying to put out something that we feel like hasn't, maybe been touched and and it, it gets more and more difficult as time goes on because there's just so much content and so many people making stuff now that it's going to change over time i'm sure the way the selling of sounds industry goes but it's definitely grown a lot since even since soundwarf started so so what was the the catalyst for you like what made you want to create that first collection for soundmorph so I was kind of just tired of working for somebody else. I think it was like, I, I want to try I want to try to make something on my own. And I, I had no expectations of whether it was going to be what it is today, where I think we've really established ourselves in the community and we're used in lots of Hollywood films and all the AAA games you can think of um, all over the place. It's really exciting. I mean, I didn't know it was going to grow like that. But it's cool that it did. <laughs> it just was like exciting to realize we did have something that was that that people were liking, that was getting some traction, and that there was a possibility I could quit my job and just do sound more full time. Uh, and that happened within a couple of years, so it was like really exciting. And that, it's a big motivator, you know, when you feel like I can have a vision of something I want to make and then make it, and no one can tell me I can't. That's pretty liberating. And and I work from home, which is also nice. I think the egos may be involved a little bit in like wanting to create something that continues on into, you know, we're all part of the universe of sound creation and uh, creativity and wanting to leave a mark, I suppose, in whatever way that is. I mean, those are all reasons that I started it, I think, was that, I mean, I got into sound because I wanted to contribute to making sound better. Uh, and making it enjoyable. You know, it gives pleasure to people. Uh, it relaxes them. It excites them. It creates so many emotions. And I think that that's why sound is cool. I mean, that's why I got into it. When you started out, what did the sound effects industry look like? And what was your plan for the Soundmorph label? Like, you know, starting out, did you have a direction that you wanted to go in? Or was it more like, let's put ourselves out there and see where it takes us? I mean, I think it was a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, I the first three packs we did were, like I said, the user interface st futuristic stuff was stuff that I felt when I was working on a sci-fi game and as a junior sound designer, really, I didn't know what I was doing. So I was like, you know, I don't think there's a lot of sci-fi UI stuff out there. At the time, there wasn't much, really much of it, any. So that was one of the things I was like, oh, that's something I would really like to have. So I'll make that. And then it was the same thing with the robots. Robotic Lifeforms was the other one we launched with. I just thought there was a lack of good robot stuff out there. And I really loved WALL-E and I was like working on like sci-fi games and that needed things like that. Just sci-fi servos and robot feet and whatever, you know? And so I thought, well, there's a lack of that. I'd like to have more stuff like that. So I'll make something like that. I mean, that's kind of like what Soundmorph really for me was about just trying to make stuff that I felt like working as a sound designer in games, um, stuff that I wanted. 
Now, I've been out of working at game studios for a while, so now I kind of rely on some of the younger guys to tell me or, or just talking with people in the industry, like, what do you want, you know? Because I really like think that just getting feedback from people, if you're not in it or you're hitting a creative wall or something, just talking with people can sometimes just stir up that, those creative ideas and stuff like that, so. But I mean, with Sound Morph, it was really just like trying to, um, I mean, I think at first we were thinking, well, we're going to be all sci-fi and we kind of have had that, I guess that vibe a little bit, but we've branched out from that. You know, we tried to do some drums and stuff and um, that we actually have some stuff coming for that eventually. <laughs> it's been kind of on the shelf for a while, but, you know, we tried some stuff and, you know, drums hasn't been a, really a popular, as popular of a thing as our sound libraries and our software. So we're kind of just sticking with that stuff now. We're trying stuff that we think that people might like or is not out there. I think that was really the idea for me was to just try to contribute things that I thought weren't there. And yeah, that gets tougher and tougher as time goes on. And the fire library, were you thinking, yeah, I'd like to play with fire, so let's go record it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I think it was a lot of talking like, I hadn't done a library my, on my own for a while because I just was running Soundmorph. Um, and I was talking with Jan about like, what should we do next? And he's always been into to magic stuff. Well, like we did the elemental magic library because like mostly because he wanted to do it. And I, I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it, man. And that one was pretty popular. But then we felt like, well, it would be kind of cool to divide like the elements of magic casts or, or something like that. I mean, that's kind of what the elemental series is, what, what we had in mind with it. There's ice, water, fire, earth, whatever stuff out there already. So I, I think the big challenge to it for me was like, how can I bring something new to fire? I researched a lot of stuff, got some, uh, some crazy fire artist things. I guess I hadn't seen a lot of that. I made like what's called a plasma gun where you take a, a blowtorch and hook it up to a, a tube. It's like clear like plumbing tubing or whatever. And then you hook that up to like a two liter and drill a hole in the end. And you fill up the whole thing with gas. And when you ignite it, it kind of travels through the tube. And then the gas combines in the two liter and does like a, a pop kind of. You know, I was just looking up stuff on YouTube, like, what can I do with fire that I haven't seen before? And that was one of the things I found. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> it's got a cool sound because when it travels through the tube, it does sort of like a, you know, like, like sort of like a, it reminded me of like a special power that that like the dark side of the force might have or like a superhero or something. And actually, like I only did one length, like it was about 10 feet, but you could you know, you could do like shorter lengths or longer lengths or smaller tubes and bigger tubes and get like a real, you know, I wanted to do that one idea, but I didn't necessarily want to take on doing all the variations, but somebody might see that and go like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'm going to take that and do a whole collection of plasma gun, the hand built like by me collection or whatever, um, which I think would be kind of cool. But yeah, so the fire library was like, I wanted to try to just do like, and some stereo stuff that I hadn't seen before and just have it be all like real high quality. I mean, it turned out good. It's a good collection. Um, We're aiming to do like, just like really high quality collections that are maybe priced up a little bit, but have a lot of great content. 
So, you know, there's going to be water, there's going to be ice, there's going to be earth. So, yeah, you know, it's just trying to figure out, like, how do we cover maybe some stuff that hasn't been done before or give it a special twist or something like that. Um, I mean, I think that people have really found our stuff useful from the feedback that I've gotten. So we just keep doing that. <laughs> you know? uh, did you have a favorite release? Was there one collection you created that you just had a really fun time working on? Um, one of my favorite, and I have to give a lot of respect to the guys that helped me with it, was the Robotic Lifeforms 2, just because I think it's really, really good. I didn't design much of anything in that one, but I did the first one. So I was kind of helping with that, like just talking about like, why do we want to do a second one? And like, what's it going to be? Why is it going to be different? Or because I, I mean, the first one I think is still good, but I did it seven or eight years ago. So trends change, ideas change, new mics and equipment and plugins come out. And all of a sudden, one of the guys owns a top of the line Kima. So all those factors change, like, why would you make some another one? But I just felt like uh, Tebow and Boris were the guys that made it with me for Soundmorph. And I mean, I just think they, they killed it with just really uh, high quality, innovative stuff and did a lot of field recordings and a lot of research on where to get that stuff. And then had like, you know, Sankin mics for doing the pitching and, uh, and Kima for doing like more complex design stuff which I think is really what what like helped set that library apart from, I mean, I think it's the best robot library you can get out there. There might be some other really great ones, but for now, I say it's the champ. <laughs> <laughs> so Robotic Lifeforms was your favorite uh, collection to create, but which collection was the most challenging to create? Uh, sometimes the most challenging things can also be the most rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I think that can be the case because if it was easy, I said this to my partner the other day because we're working on a new software that he was really stressing about. And I just reminded him, like, if it was easy, anybody could do it. And that's the reason that we exist. Like, if if it was easy to make the products that all of us make out there. No one would need to buy them. So it's important to keep that in mind when if something feels hard. If it's hard, that just means that I'm doing something that's challenging and that's a good thing. I mean, the robots library was, was really hard. It's hard to do that stuff. Cause yeah, you can find one servo, but then like you need to have a bazillion more and then they need to be unique or special. Not just, I mean, anybody can get certain ones. So you have to like figure out, okay, well, where am I going to get ones that sound different or what factory am I going to go to? One chunk of special sounds could have taken you a day or a week or whatever to plan and find and go and record and edit. And then you're like, okay, I got 15 variations of that one sound and that's pretty good. But now I need like 3000 more. So, I mean, that's a challenge with stuff like sci-fi stuff. And then, you know, other ones are much simpler. Doing the motorcycles library was really fast, you know, set up a few mics and do some passbys. There's definitely certain ones that I feel are much quicker to do than others, but I don't think that quicker should be the goal. We try to take our time. We don't put out a ton of releases every year, but we try to make sure each one of them is good because that's part of our brand reputation. We don't put out something that's not good. And I think that's why people keep coming back. How has the independent sound effects market changed since Soundmorph got involved? I think that it's changed a lot in the sense that, yeah, there was a limited amount from big companies. And now it's been divided into to different tribes, kind of. 
Now we have the ones providing just source stuff and then ones like Boom and Soundmorph that do a bit of both, like highly designed and source stuff. And then you have Krotos that's doing kind of similar Soundmorph in the sense that everybody's doing software now. And I think that that's awesome. I've got a great relationship with Orpheus from Krotos and we talk about like what we think will go on. And, you know, I try to keep the channels open and we're competitors, but we try to like bounce some ideas off of each other sometimes. You know, right now they're selling our Gore library as part of Weaponizer. For me, I think that there's going to be some collaborations probably between some of the, like the ones that are more established which I think will be a good thing. You know, you have a lot of great creative minds behind these companies. And I think that the success definitely of Boom and Soundmorph and Krotos and Tonestrom and Glitch Machines and Twisted Tools and all those guys, it's that they put out creative stuff that gets people excited, makes them excited to use the product in their projects. Because it's fun to have good sounds and, you know, it's all a bunch of librarians. We're a bunch of nerdy librarians that can't get enough. There's so much good stuff out there that it'll be interesting to see how it evolves from here. And in general, are there any new developments that you're excited to see in the sound effects industry? One of the things that I helped a little bit with was when Soundmore first came out, I was talking with Steve, who owns Basehead, about how cool would it be if you could search within Basehead and just have stuff pop up that maybe you didn't own it. But if you were like, oh, that's exactly what I need, you could buy it. That was early on in Soundmorph, and it was sometime in the summer. Finally, it was released, and I mean, I think that's a cool way to do it. What I liked about that was it bypasses having to go to all of our sites and buy stuff and download stuff. It's another way to like speed up your workflow, kind of. We make a lot of extra income selling our stuff around with different people, and that's part of the partnerships that we make that help us keep afloat, you know? Asbjorn finds customers that we don't. And it's a mutually beneficial uh, relationship where we get some sales from customers that maybe they just like being a client of a sound effect or they like him or they like the download process or he advertised somewhere where we didn't, um, things like that. So it's all kind of a win-win beneficial thing for all of us. So you've had a number of collaborations with renowned sound creators like Richard Devine and Charles Maines. How did these collaborations come about? With Richard, uh, you know, he does tons of stuff. He's kind of like a crazy mad scientist of sound, <laughs> just obsessed with sound, which I think is great. He was always just tapped into the, the newest stuff that was happening. And um, we were following him and we're big fans. He used a lot of stuff, plugins that his name was in and he's grown his name to astronomical uh, areas in the industry, which is great. Like a few days after Soundmorph came out, he wrote us directly and just asked us if he could check out the libraries. And so we sent him the first three libraries and he he really helped us a lot in, in the beginning. Like every time we had a release or anything, he would tweet about it and he has like 20,000 followers or something. So that really helped spread the word about Soundmorph. He liked the stuff we were putting out and then came to Montreal. There's a, a new music festival there called Mutech, which is like experimental and electronic music, I think mostly. He was playing there like a modular set. And then I started talking to him about like do an alternative to Users of Tomorrow, uh, like a different take on user interface stuff. And because he has such a crazy modular setup that I was like, well, I think it would be cool to do a, a, a user interface library that was all based off of your modular Euro rack stuff. And he was just likes doing it for just just because he likes doing sound. 
At that time, we didn't have as much money as some of the bigger companies do, or you know, <laughs> we're not native instruments, but he was like happy to do it for a price that was probably lower than his pay grade was at the time, but like he just liked us and wanted to do it. And he's just a really great guy. And then with Charles Maines, I wanted to make Intervention, which was based off of SWAT teams and guns, SWAT guns. And I wanted it to be all like gear that SWAT teams use. I reached out to Charles and he was down to do like a, a royalty where he would get some of the sales just for the gunshot sounds because we didn't have that stuff. So, and then one of his pals in LA had a bunch of gun Foley stuff. And the tricky part is if you're dealing with somebody that's maybe more well known, I guess, is that they have to have a reason to want to work with you. And I guess their reason was that they liked what we put out already. And so when we started talking with them, they had a level of respect for us already. So what are you excited about for the future of Sound Morph and the future of sound effect libraries? Yeah, we're, we're very excited to be uh, working with A Sound Effect and A Sound Effect's really taken care of us over the years. And I really like the partnership that we've formed with them. So I hope everybody enjoys some of this and uh, always can shoot me messages Directly to Soundmorph at jason at soundmorph.com or through social media on for Soundmorph. I always like to hear from people. Anybody that's uh, involved in the sound community and hearing any ideas they might have for Soundmorph, because really like it helps us uh, hear what our customers and fans would like to see next. Next up is an interview with BAFTA award-winning composer Jesper Kidd, who worked on Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Hey, this is Jennifer Walden for a sound effect. Today, I'm joined by BAFTA-winning composer Jesper Kidd, talking about the score on the latest Assassin's Creed release, Valhalla. Jesper, you've done several Assassin's Creed game scores. Uh, the first game in 2007, uh, Assassin's Creed II, Brotherhood, Revelations. How does your experience on Valhalla compare to those? Assassin's Creed One was very different, obviously, being the first Assassin's Creed game. We worked more on defining what the game sound should be. That was a lot of the focus. That's where the idea was born of mixing the animus with acoustic performances in ways that it kind of filters the sound. And so just to explain the animus is this device that can uh, go into your genes and your DNA where you have stored memories from your forefathers. It can sequence those memories and then you get to play those memories as you play through the game. We work very much on, on coming up with what that should sound like. It shouldn't just sound like something more straightforward. There's all kinds of things we're doing, filtering the sound and editing and, and messing around with the instruments. So, I mean, it was very different from that. And Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood, the setting... Being Italian in the Renaissance, there was a lot there that had to be figured out. We had to figure out how to do a modern version of that kind of music. In comparison with Valhalla, I think one of the the big things I took away from it is how big the game is. It is just vast, and it has a lot of open spaces, forests, fields, mountains, all that kind of stuff, where the other titles I worked on felt Apart from Assassin's Creed 1, which also had a lot of open landscapes, most of the games I worked on took place in cities. So there was more platforming around buildings. This time you're 
exploring these, these big environments. So that definitely influenced the sound of the score. It's the fifth time I've worked with Ubisoft Montreal. I know those people pretty well, and they're always a pleasure to work with. And I feel they're, they're some of the best at what they do. And of course, working with the co-composer Sarah Shatner and the songwriter Aina Selvik, that made it different as well. So apart from the obvious Viking theme, what are other key visual elements that influenced your approach to the score? Uh, you just mentioned being in nature and being outside the city. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, the environment very much influenced the score. And it was one of the first things that Ubisoft told me how important the environment is in the game. And all you have to do is look at the game and you can just tell that a lot of work went into this so obviously they were looking for something authentic to match that environment. So that also made it different because with games like Assassin's Creed 2, of course the Renaissance was important, but the storyline was very important as well. In Assassin's Creed Valhalla, the environment took center stage and the storyline came in after we started working. First we needed to get the sound of what this environment was going to sound like before we could start adding the story. There was a lot of work put into how this should actually sound. A lot of Viking music tend to be dark and have these dark pulses go through it. That's how I thought of Viking music. So the first music cue I said was you know, way too dark. And not that there's not dark music in the game, but we really wanted to start with what the environment sound like. Not when you engaged in combat or when you engaged in a mission but what it just sounds like when you're exploring this environment without being in danger, I made them more ethereal and more uplifting. That was interesting to find a Viking sound that has that kind of sound to it. That's a lot of what, what I worked on. So let's talk about your collaboration with Ubisoft Montreal's audio director Aldo Sampeo and music director Simon Landry. Uh, what were their goals for the sound of the score, and how did it relate to the sound of the game overall? Authenticity was definitely number one. I was told early on, we're not looking for an orchestral soundtrack. The environment needs to really influence the actual sound, not just the melodies, but the very DNA of the music. I realized pretty early on that I was going to have to acquire a lot of ancient instruments, you know, toggle harbor. Um, I got a toggle harp, a cello, which is a really big version of the toggle harp. Uh, other instruments were more inspired by a Celtic music, like the croth and the rebec. I use a morancour, which is a Mongolian cello, as well as regular cello, metal drums, all kinds of things in there. Not only are these instruments that were around at the time, some of them are not, but that's okay. As, as long as when I play them, they feel like they fit the world. That is the most important thing. And so I got these instruments, and I need to figure out how to compose for these instruments, because I don't know these instruments. And so I started playing them, and after playing them a lot, I figured, you know, I'm just going to perform them myself because uh, this is just so much fun. And so I was introduced to a world of string instruments and just suddenly find myself playing all these instruments and spending all this time performing and tuning and, you know, bleeding fingers. And all these things were, were quite new to me. I had performed, of course, some instruments in the past. But on this one, I pretty much performed everything myself except maybe a couple of tracks that had like 
an acoustic guitar in it for uh, Kingdom of Wessex. I had a good friend of mine perform that guitar. So that was pretty much the beginning of the project, realizing I'm not going to be able to achieve the vision I have if I don't play these instruments myself. It's such an interesting palette of instruments that you found. How did you learn to play them? Did you find someone to teach you or did you watch some YouTube videos? Uh, Did you learn to play them properly or just sort of feel your way around them? Uh, Yes to the last one, no to all the other ones. (laughs) So I did not want to learn how to play them properly. I wanted it to be a more spontaneous thing. The thought being that I wanted the performance to be rugged, to be rough around the edges, you know, to have some kind of Viking playing them. Not to say that people back then couldn't be great performers on whatever instruments was around. I felt it was important to get more of an organic performance. But sometimes I do need a beautiful performance. And, and so that's when I rely on the, the soloists I work with. But for majority of this, I felt like a more organic, rugged performance was the way to go. So I just played them, taught myself, I guess, um, and just played and played and played until I felt like I was starting to get a good handle on it. And what about percussion? What did you choose for percussion on these tracks? There's a lot of different percussion instruments. The frame drum being one of the key percussion instruments I use in all kinds of different sizes. I use some unusual percussion instruments like the spring drum, and I also use some Indian percussion I work with two different percussionists, and then I also did a lot of it myself. So between the three of us, we really worked on coming up with something really gritty. That also means that the percussion was run through different filters and and whatever to really gritty things up. Did you perform those and play them back as samples, or was it all live performances? It's all live, yeah. Let's talk about some of the synthetic, virtual, and electronic instruments that you chose to complement the traditional instruments that you have in the tracks. Uh, For instance, there's the synthy element in Leo Firth's Honor. adds this cool, tense texture to the already dark track. So how did you go about finding really good synth sounds to complement the natural sounds of the traditional instruments? I have a fairly large collection of analog synthesizers from the 1970s and 80s. I'm a big fan of vintage synthesizers and the aesthetic they bring and the palette they bring to the table. I feel back then Yamaha and Roland, Korg, these companies, also American companies like Oberheim and Sequential Circuits and Moog, um, there was a search for creating the ultimate sounding electronic instruments back in the 70s, for sure. Yamaha created like the ultimate performance instruments called the CS80, which you would recognize from all of Vangelis' music, scores like Blade Runner and Chariots of Fire. It's like that lead instrument in those soundtracks. So I have a CS80. It's it's a monster. It's like a 250-pound keyboard. That I used quite a bit. For the performance specifically you mentioned, that is a Prophet 10 from 1979, which is two Prophet 5 put into a box. So it's also, it's huge. And I have a lot of other analog instruments I used on that score. So these are um, very much live performances. These instruments don't have MIDI. Some of them have CV gate, uh, so you can add a device and you can gate things up so you can play MIDI. But for most part, 
especially the older instruments, they don't. I really love the performance anyway. Performing these things, it's very much a spontaneous thing. So that track you mentioned, uh, Leo First's Honor, that's the, the Prophet 10 on that. And what about the vocal parts? Those are really fantastic too. On Out of the North, there's this great rough staccato male voice that happens over these droney elements in that tune. And then there's those super long, drawn-out notes that remind me of Gregorian chant for some reason. Right. How did you find those singers, and where did you find the inspiration to write these vocal parts? Yeah, so the female vocals are Melissa Kaplan, who also worked with me on Assassin's Creed 1, 2, Brotherhood and Revelations, and she also sings the original Edgeless Family. Another vocalist I work with is Clara Solis. And then Einar Selvik provided vocals for the Etios family ascending to Valhalla. The male vocals in all the other tracks were actually performed by me. Uh, I've been working on my own vocal technique for a few years now, and I've used my voice in uh, a few scores already, like my Tombad film score, Borderlands 3, Vermitide 2. You know, I started with vocal effects, and then it grew from there. My voice can go quite low and also falsetto, so I felt it was a good fit for the Viking setting. That was a lot of fun to work on. Wow, that's your voice? That's amazing. Some of those parts are so low. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's real. You know, I don't uh, put a lot of processing on that kind of stuff. I found out I have a very deep voice, and that is definitely something I've been using in my scores. That's really cool. Um, so did you have a few favorite tracks or themes for the Valhalla score? Uh, there's so many great tracks. Did any stand out as favorites for you? And what went into creating them? There's a few there. Kingdom of Wessex, uh, it's a good one to start with. That's where I felt we found a way to do melodies and at the same time create a sound that was very authentic and like an open sound that fits when you're crawling up mountaintops. I also added more Celtic instruments like harps and, and guitars in there so it is a little bit different from the other tracks and I was also super excited to get Melissa back on that track so for me it felt like a very authentic Assassin's Creed type track. It reminded me very much of that sound that we've been going for. Another track, The Frozen North, I really like because it was one of the first tracks I wrote. The temper, the feeling, the atmosphere, it's a very atmospheric track. The atmosphere in that track very much is inspired by the location. And so it's, it's very frozen landscape. The feeling of that track felt like, okay, this is what I'd like my Valhalla music to feel like. And then after that, I went and worked with more melody. But that was a very good starting point for me when I felt like, okay, this really deepens the experience of what we're seeing here. So yeah, that's why I would choose that one. Also, the, the Bounteous Earth, it's a personal favorite. It's hard to pinpoint what it is that makes me like that track, but there is a feeling in there that's hard to describe, and I love tracks like that when you can't quite put your finger on how or what you're hearing. 
but there is something mystical about that track and quite mysterious with these ancient instruments being delayed with analog delays in very kind of organic ways, but also certainly very modern ways because this is not something obviously you could do back then. Also, the idea of working a lot with air is something I have in some of my favorite tracks where I would record things uh, and the mics would be quite far from the instrument and I would have this air in the recording to simulate being outside amongst mountains and fjords and stuff like that. And so that is another technique actually I used on the score. So let's talk about mixing the final tracks. Uh, How did you prepare your tracks for implementation into the game? And did the game developers or the audio director ask for specific stems for 5.1 or anything like that? So I would record the track, and if there was any changes, I would make changes. Then I would submit the track to Ubisoft. They would put it in the game. They would have already sent me a video, like flyby over a landscape to be inspired by and they would put it in the game and then they would send me back another video so I could see how it works in the game Uh, this time it would be from a more of a gameplay perspective that's super helpful to see and a a great way to work when you're sending things back and forth so then the score would be written like this towards the end of the project I deliver the stems for all the cues and sent to Ubisoft also we start mixing the cues and record stems and send to my mixer Jason LaRocca and he starts mixing it we mixed all the tracks and then I take those tracks back we start working on the soundtrack doing minor minor edits and coming up with the track listing working on track names then the album is almost ready then it goes to mastering and we give feedback on the mastering and then once that's approved then the soundtrack is ready and then it goes out Who was your mastering engineer on the OST? The soundtrack was mastered by Patricia Sullivan at Bernard Grunman Mastering. I actually don't know whether she is uh, uh, mastering this at home or at uh, Bernard Grunman Mastering because of COVID, you know. But I absolutely love the mastering she did on this. I was really, really pleased. Can you talk about your collaboration with composer Sarah Schachner? How did your collaboration together work for the score? I collaborated with Sarah for the main theme, and that was written towards the end of the project. All the music prior was written separately. We got different areas to score, so when it comes to the exploration part of the game, the areas, I was assigned uh, Norway, East Anglia, Northumbria, and Wessex. I also did the music for the present, the more futuristic animus-sounding music. Then we were both assigned cinematics, and we were both assigned mission music. So if there was a stealth cue, I would write one and Sarah would write one, and they would have two stealth cues. Pretty much all the mission music worked that way. And just to be clear, of course, Sarah had her areas that she scored for exploration as well. When collaborating on the main theme, how did you share ideas back and forth? Uh, Were you sharing sessions or were you sharing tracks? So I had a really great talk with Ubisoft, with Simon Landry specifically from Ubisoft, about what they were looking for for this theme, what it should sound like, what it should feel like, and, and how it should be used in the game. I wrote a first version of the theme. Ubisoft really loved it. And then I sent that to Sarah Shackner. And she continued writing on it and also started producing it. And then Einar Selvig 
got involved and did the vocals. And that was how we created that. So just one final question here. Um, what are you most proud of in terms of your score on Valhalla? The biggest challenge was definitely to figure out how to write music that sounds like Viking music, but at the same time isn't dark with a heavy pulse. So I would say that's what I'm most proud of. Also, just to be able to write this score with the instruments that I laid out in front of me and, and to say, you're going to figure out how to play these instruments. That was really an interesting experience and, and a very rewarding one. So that was another great thing about it. Jesper, thank you so much for having this chat about your tremendous score on Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to hear you like it. If you're looking for more podcasts about sound, check out these uh, greetings from our friends in the audio podcasting community, and uh, you'll find them all at audiopodcast.org. Hi, this is Sam from The Sound Architect. In our recent episodes, I've spoken to composer Patrick Kiest about his recent work on The Kissing Booth 1 and 2, and coming very soon, I'll share interviews with voice actor Jane Perry about her career as well as her role in Cyberpunk 2077, composers Mikolai Struinsky and Gary Scheiman about their soundtrack for Metamorphosis, and composer Chris Velasco about his soundtrack for Carrion. Find us at www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. Hello, this is Tim from Tonebenders. Check out our new double episode about the sound of the hit series, The Queen's Gambit. Part one features Eric Hain on the mixing of the series, and part two talks to the sound editorial and Foley team. Listen to these new episodes wherever you find your podcasts or at tonebenderspodcast.com. I'm Dallas Taylor, host of 20,000 Hertz, a TED podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. We've revealed the untold story about how the iconic Netflix audio logo was almost completely different. Thank God I didn't go with the goat. <laughs> and we found out that the sound designer of Game of Thrones channeled her grief into the sounds of the dragons. These dragons have kind of saved me in a way because they have become this vessel for me to work through my own pain. We've also examined the frightening implications of audio deepfakes. Being able to release fake audio or video is going to potentially be a major vector for trying to influence populations, influence votes. And we've unraveled the relationship between light, sound, and space. The whole universe is connected by light. But with sound, you really are truly in different islands of sound. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz right here in your podcast player. I'll meet you there. That's it for this episode. A big thanks to Jennifer Walden for doing the interviews and to Jesper Kidd and Jason Cushing for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the A Sound Effect podcast at asoundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Take care. Take care.